Hello and welcome to Bright Wings, children's books to make the heart soar. I am your host, Charity Hill. The purpose of this conversation is to help mothers and fathers identify books that will liberate their children to embrace truth, goodness, and beauty. Perhaps you, like me, are eager for any news of hope. And I'm going to tell you, dog stories are full of hope. In fact, I'm going to tell you a dog story right now. I just got to say, sometimes I have to laugh at myself. Sometimes I feel like a bloodhound or a beagle. Maybe a beagle. Beagles are cuter. I feel like a beagle who's always on the scent for meaning. I'm always on the scent for truth, goodness, and beauty. And I I never leave home without it. Uh, so what inspired this podcast was a few weeks ago, we took our dog to the veterinarian. You can probably guess that a trip to the veterinarian can't just be a trip to the veterinarian. It's an experience. It becomes an opportunity to reflect on things. And that's what we do here. That's what we do here at Bright Wings. So if you just want the book list, go to the show notes. (laughs) And that's okay. Sometimes you need the book list. But part of what we do here is we think about the reasons why we read what we read. And so let me tell you about this trip to the veterinary clinic. It's a low-cost veterinary clinic. That's the attraction. And you cannot make an appointment. They serve patients first come, first serve. You're not actually allowed to line up outside the clinic doors. You're supposed to wait in your cars. You can anticipate that this scenario might set up clients be tense and competitive. But being a bit competitive myself, this didn't scare me. And so I had to get my children up really early on a summer morning because we wanted to be first in line because later on in the morning we had orthodontist appointments. So all that to say, stakes are kind of high and patrons of this veterinary clinic could definitely have some tensions with one another, some competitive spirit going on. But once we finally got our numbers and took our seats in the waiting room, and let me tell you, it's hard surfaces, very loud, could be stressful, right? So we were sitting in a somewhat small U-shaped waiting area, waiting our turn to be seen by the vet. And I was enjoying myself hugely. People were trading stories about their dogs. They were sharing information about their dog breeds. My kids, I had all four of them with me in this cramped situation. They were carefully petting dogs. We got to see some really amazing breeds. We saw a puppy that was like 50% genuine wolf. We saw a stupendously enormous Rottweiler. But every human being in that room was really present. Every human being in that room was really paying attention to all the other people and their dogs. Everybody had two hands on their dogs. And it was my best experience in a long time in being in a crowd of strangers where everyone was exhibiting like a lot of openness. There was just so much so much observation going on. The crowd of people was very open to sharing stories and understanding people's situations in life. And the dogs in this room, it was largely dogs, were a vehicle for people to encounter people. So I'm sharing this with you because the situation had potential for headache and hassle and even animosity all over it. But actually, I came home from that day getting in at the veterinary clinic. I came home from that day with my husband. I was like, Yeah, it could have been awful, but I actually had a really great time. I began to reflect on what made this so great. Obviously, all these conversations. And I thought, how did all of those conversations transpire? And I recognized two things. Two things. The first was so simple, it's almost easy to miss. And it's this. 
People needed to have their hands on their dogs. And so their phones were put away. And so we were actually waiting for something together. And we were actually together and not distracted from waiting and from one another by phones. And the second thing that made this encounter in the waiting room of the veterinary clinic so remarkable and even possible is the effect that dogs have on us. And I don't mean that they just kept our hands busy. C.S. Lewis gives us an insight here in his book, The Four Loves. It's actually from the chapter on charity. He writes, To love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly be broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact... You must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in a casket or coffin of your selfishness. And this was what gave me reason to hope. This is what renewed my hope in humanity, is that all of us in that waiting room were not safe from having our heart broken. We all did love something, even if it was only an animal. All of us in that room were vulnerable to love simply because we own and care for a dog. And our pets were making possible a genuine encounter with reality. Our pets were making possible a genuine encounter with each other. On that note, let me tell you about our dog. Our dog Penny is named for Penny Meyer from Trent Lee Stewart's The Secret Keepers. Our dog Penny is quick and cheerful and kind and good. And like Penny Meyer, so smart. And of course, our Penny is also copper colored. Since Penny became our dog, she's shed light on and fur on the question of who am I? We really discover who we are in relation to another, even an animal other. As C.S. Lewis points out, we're vulnerable. Relation makes us vulnerable, but it also is so enriching, right? It's not merely vulnerability means you're vulnerable to wonder. So in really paying attention to who and what a dog is, we also discover more about who we are. There are three outstanding themes that Penny has shown me. And the first is joy. Dogs show us the joy of existence. They show us that it is good to be. Penny, you good little thing. I'm glad you are. Next time you pet your dog, tell them that. Right? I think the joy of existence is there every time you pet your dog. Dogs show us this, that existence is as play. The second theme is dogs, especially puppies. Oh, man. Show us how good it is to be embodied. Gosh, isn't a puppy the most wonderful example of how how beautiful and good it is to be a body? Everybody loves puppies. They're wonderful just as they are. You want to touch their little rounded bellies and stroke their silky ears. And children love, who are so tactile love to pet a dog. And our dog is just so willing to be petted. She is one of the most social dogs I've ever met. She always wants to be with us, is willing to be petted all the time, but isn't pushy about asking us to pet her. We're talking about an embodied presence that in some sense communicates a self. And through its touchability and through its own initiative is able to, in a certain sense, participate in human life, albeit as a dog. You know, things like you can see dogs offer their bodies to comfort you. And what are you doing when you are comforted by them, you're petting them. It's this very interesting paradox. They give themselves to comfort you, and then you pet them and please them, and it pleases you. It's as if they say with their bodies, here, don't be sad, pet me. 
But this happens precisely in the body and as a body, this good communication between creatures. And the third theme that Penny brings to mind quite often, surprisingly, is mortality. I think Penny is about three or four years old, and she's really at the prime of her life. Sweet dog, plenty of energy, but not enough to drive us crazy. But I'm quite aware that she will not always be this way. I'm quite aware that she is changing and that I am changing, and neither of us is going to live forever. Of course, mostly children aren't thinking about their dog's mortality along the way. Mostly they think of it at the end. But I think sometimes children do have an awareness of this, even though it's a bit hazy. They've heard mom and dad talk about burying their own favorite dogs from growing up. So they know, they know it's in the background somewhere. And dogs are this memento mori, this remembrance of death. They are this invitation to wisdom because we love something that is finite. So I have books for all of these themes on joy, embodiment, and mortality. I hear you guy at the back saying, when are we going to get to the fun part? All three of these themes are present in a book called Stay, A Girl, A Dog, A Bucket List by two sisters, written by Kate Kleiss, and it's illustrated by M. Sarah Kleiss. They dedicate this book for people who love dogs and for dogs who love people. The reason this book is called Stay is because the author and illustrator want to emphasize how precious our time is, how precious our time with our pets is. It opens with the main character, Astrid, coming home from the hospital as a baby, and the dog, Eli, is at home waiting for her. For a while, Eli is bigger than Astrid, and finally, Astrid catches up and gets taller than Eli, and Eli says to himself, yes, but I am older. Astrid begins to realize that Eli is getting older, and so she very intentionally tries to make the most of the time that she has with Eli. And it's about all the wonderful things that they do together, the things that they do together on purpose, to love each other. At the end of the book, the final words are, is there anything else you want to do before you get too old? Astrid asks, anything at all? Whatever it is, I'll add it to the bucket list. And Eli is laying on the couch, and Eli says, this, just this. Being with Astrid was the only thing left on Eli's bucket list. It was the only thing that had ever been on Eli's bucket list. Children will find this book to be wonderful, comforting, a summary of their beautiful experiences with their dog. Parents will see these three themes that I'm talking about, joy, the goodness of embodiment, and mortality. It's a beautiful, wise celebration of a girl's love and relationship with her dog. Another picture book that's even one step more simple than Stay, A Girl, A Dog, A Bucket List, is a book called Homer by Alicia Cooper. Probably the prime age for children reading this story is between three and five years old. It's It sounds so simple, but it's literally a book about a dog who sits on the porch and he's older and his family goes past him and invites him to participate in different activities. But Homer is just contentedly sitting on the porch, happy that his people are happy, happy that the other two dogs that live in the house are happy. It's very simple language. For example, one of the little girls in the family has her hands on him 
and she has a sand pail and her bathing suit on. And she says, walk to the beach and play in the sand. And Homer says, no, you go. When she comes back, she says to him, the beach was beautiful. The sand was warm. And she shows him a shell. He says, he sniffs this shell and he says, I can imagine. At the end of the day, the sunset is in the sky and the the dad says to Homer on the porch, do you need anything? Homer says, no, I have everything I want. And then with images, no words, we see that Homer stretches and he comes in the house and they pour him some food and he eats it. And then he hops up into a chair and he says, I have you. Again, a really wonderful story, especially for little children who have a dog that's getting older, just to enjoy the time that has been given them with their pet, be aware of the gifts of their dog, and um, to pay attention to that as the time grows shorter. A couple of books that are just pure joy about the joy of having a dog and being with your dog. Two books that we love are called A Boy, A Ball, and a Dog by author-illustrator Gianna Marino. And the other is called Frank and Lucky Get Schooled by Lynn Ray Perkins. So first, let me tell you about A Boy, A Ball, and a Dog. It's very simple, well done, especially for the three to five-year-olds. It concerns a boy and a ball and a dog. It says there was never a ball the boy wouldn't throw or one his dog couldn't catch. Until one day, the wind changed. This ball, the dog thought, I might not catch. And in fact, the ball is actually a balloon that's blown out of the boy's hand. And the illustrations by Marino for this are wonderful, just so full of color and movement because the day is so windy. We see windmills blowing. We see dandelion seeds up in the foreground blowing. We see birds being blown. We see waves being made by the wind. This book is especially good if you have a little guy who has never met a ball that he doesn't want to throw, kick, or catch. I have one of those. And then this second one, Frank and Lucky Gets Schooled by Lynn Ray Perkins. This is a book I've been wanting to tell you about for a long time. It's awesome. The book is really pure joy. It shows us how when you pay attention and are present to one area of your life, all these different bodies of knowledge you discover overlap with each other. And it's all done through the relationship with this boy and his dog. The boy, Frank, has a terrible day. And at the end of a soccer game that gets run, run rained out, his parents take him to the dog shelter. They've been thinking, well, about getting a dog. And they take him to the dog shelter where he picks out Lucky. So on one of his most unlucky days, he picks out Lucky. And when Lucky was lost and found, he got Frank. They were both pups and they had a lot to learn. So first they learned about each other. Then they went off to school. Lucky went to his school 10 times. Frank went to his school thousands of times. Still, Lucky could always help Frank with his homework because Lucky did a lot of learning on his own. For example, Lucky, this is the dog, was very interested in science. Who isn't? Science is when you wonder about something. So you observe it and ask questions about it and try to understand it. And so we have these just charming cartoon-like things where we can see Lucky's thoughts as Lucky dashes around outside through all these different environments, meadows, grasslands, burrs. He's 
runs through snow. We see Lucky wondered about squirrels and deer, bees and porcupines and little birds. He observed snow and rain, mud and grass, ponds and streams. He asked questions. Can I catch it? Can I eat it? Does it feel good? Is it, my friend? What is this stuff? You like worms? I like worms too. When Lucky got home, he helped Frank learn about botany, which is science about plants, and entomology, which is science about bugs. The time Lucky wondered about skunks, he and Frank learned about chemistry. There's this delightful scene about uh, math and fractions. For example, it says, when it's nighttime, how much of the bed is Lucky's and how much is Frank's? As you can see, this is fractions and percentages, and the answer changes throughout the night. I have rarely encountered a book so full of wonder and so full of joy at the interrelated uh, relationship between different bodies of knowledge and how natural it is for children to explore these, especially when there is a connection that runs between them. For example, Lucky the dog. What impresses me about Frank and Lucky Get Schooled is that it, this this showing of the relationship between different bodies of knowledge and the delight in it, it really is delightful. It's not heavy-handed, didactic, preachy, irritating, like, hey, these things are related. No, it's just so natural. Just such a beautiful story and funny. The author has these tongue-in-cheek statements to the reader, but also the there's a there's an other quality of funny in that you get to hear Lucky the Dog's goofy dog thoughts. Now, turning to middle grade fiction, I have to tell you, I finally read Lassie. I actually stayed up pretty late reading Lassie in preparation for this podcast, and it was good, but not worth staying up for. I was thinking, Lassie, it's iconic. It must be classic. It must really, I mean, it must be something to have stood the test of time. Huh. One of my main conclusions about it is that it was written for a particular time and place, and it pleased the people of that time. And it's really the movies that lent it longer, long-standing appeal. So Lassie Come Home is written by Eric Knight. It was first published as a short story in the Saturday Evening Post in 1938. And it was turned into a novel and published in 1940. And my quick review of it is that it's a good book um, as, as long as the author is really sticking to the story and as long as the author is really sticking to the narrative. There's a lot of good storytelling when he's telling us about Lassie and her encounters with people and her adventures. He does a good job when he's talking about the characters as well. Oh, by the way, it's my impression from the Lassie movies as a kid that Lassie was an American story. In fact, the book, Lassie Come Home, is is English. So it happens in the English countryside in a village um, that's a mining village. Everyone in the village admires and loves Lassie for being such a high-quality dog. Um, eventually, though, the family, ha- um, the father is out of work, the mine is closed, and he eventually has to sell Lassie to the Lord, the Duke of Rudling, who's supposed to be a mean guy, but he is actually quite a decent fellow. If I were giving stars, I'd say it's about three stars out of four. It's a movie because um, I think when they turn he when Eric Knight turned it from a short story into a novel, he added um, a lot of connective tissue that um, kind of gets heavy handed. So he seems to repeat all the time, um, repetitively tries to convince his readers how thoroughly scientific it is to believe that Lassie would indeed come home. After every one of Lassie's adventures, the author wants to convince us why it is. Um, instinctual for dogs to have this homing sense, this instinct to come home. 
So after Lassie has an adventure trying to get back to her family, uh, the author asserts again, um, what is motivating this dog and what is behind her um, heading home each time. <laughs> at 11 o'clock at night, I was sort of like, let's move on. Like, let's stick with the story. Let's just, we trust that Lassie's going home. And we either believe it or we don't. <laughs> so let's just, let's just move on with the story rather than repeat sort of the natural science from 1940. The somewhat lovely but simplistic thinking behind Lassie is that dogs make life better and without them, life is worse. So the main character, Joe Caracalla, the boy in the family, associates all his family's good fortune with the times that Lassie is with him and all of the unhappy times as a result of Lassie not being with him. Next, it's a little bit of a quirky pick, but the dog named Talk in the Phantom Tollbooth by Norton Juster is a dog that is concerned with meaning of time and insists that we use it wisely. One of the contributions that Talk, the watchdog, makes to Milo's mission to rescue Rhyme and Reason is one of the first things he does is he helps Milo appreciate the power of the present moment. When Milo asks, can you help me to talk? He says, help you? You must help yourself, the dog replied, carefully winding himself with his left hind leg. I suppose you know why you got stuck. I guess I just wasn't thinking, said Milo. Precisely, shouted the dog as his alarm went off again. Now you know what you must do. I'm afraid I don't, admitted Milo, feeling quite stupid. Well, continued the watchdog impatiently, since you got here by not thinking, it seems reasonable to expect that in order to get out, you must start thinking. Not only does talk help Milo start thinking, but he also encourages Milo to understand the value of time. That there is a lot of it, but it's very precious and it's valuable and how to make the most of the time that he is, that he's given. Lots of meaningful fun to be had in the Phantom Tollbooth. I just read that within the past year or two. One book that comes to mind when I think of our relationship with dogs and how they allow us to explore the theme of joy is the novel by Wilson Rawls, Summer of the Monkeys. The relationship between the boy, Jay Barry, and his dog, Rowdy, is wonderful. The way they trust each other and the way they try to round up those monkeys that were loose in the bottoms. It's such a great story, full of a lot of laughs, too. Part of me prefers Summer of the Monkeys, actually, to Where the Red Fern Grows, because the ending of Where the Red Fern Grows, while it's even, obviously, much more about the dogs, it does end with so much poignancy. So, um, Summer of the Monkeys, Where the Red Fern Grows, excellent reads. Now, these next two books, these are much grittier reads. And I am thinking of Sounder by William Armstrong and Old Yeller by Fred Gibson. These are much harsher human stories, harsher in the ways that people are treated in these books and the things that they suffer, as well as what the animals in these stories suffer. Sounder and Old Yeller and the sacrifices that they make for their families can perhaps be related back to this theme of embodiment. What these dogs have to give is their very lives in situations where their human families are hard-pressed and strained. What's so remarkable to me is how different these two older books are from anything um, written lately on dogs. Much different way of seeing dogs. These dogs are lauded and honored for what they have done as dogs rather than lauded and honored for how human-like they are. Now, in a really beautiful, that isn't to say there aren't beautiful books like this. So the the next book I want to suggest, the final book I want to suggest is a beautiful book by Patricia McLaughlin called The Poet's Dog. 
And there's hardly an author like McLaughlin who can write a book that is almost entirely poetic in the way that she uses her prose. Teddy is the name of the poet's dog, and the poet assures Teddy that even though Teddy can understand words, there are only two kinds of people that will understand when Teddy speaks, poets and children. This short novel concerns our vulnerability. It's precisely our vulnerability that makes us capable of accepting and giving love. But with vulnerability and love comes the, comes the problem of risk. Will I be loved in return? And who will take care of me? So Teddy encounters two children in a snowstorm, and he has to help them find help. And helping them also helps him to confront his grief at losing his poet, Sylvan. There are so many great dog stories, and I know I've only talked about a limited number. There will be a few more uh, dog books on the book list, which you can find in the show notes. I also want to encourage you to reach out to me on Instagram, because that's where you'll get the fastest response. I'm sure I've missed some of your favorite dog books, so please send me a message saying, hey, what about this one? And if you would be so kind, would you please rate this podcast? I hope you've enjoyed thinking with me about how wonderful dogs are. Perhaps you're a dog and these books about dogs will help your family to explore themes of joy, embodiment, and mortality. 